Hello everyone, welcome to JCMS's first of our mini podcast series in Mickelmas term 2020 um, in temporary COVID. Welcome Julius, um, thanks Megan for doing the sound. So I'll just quickly explain the point of this series um, or mini series and then I'll introduce Julius and then we'll just crack on. So we have been thinking very carefully as a committee about how to replace um, activities that we would have done in person, obviously non-distance before COVID with online activities and we came pretty quickly to the conclusion that some kind of podcast style discussion um, would be good and the idea is to get uh, a kind of cross-section of college life really by filming a few series a few episodes of this series um, and to develop a keener sense to take the advantage of developing a keener sense of, of what kind of music people like around college a kind of uh, a musical tapestry of Jesus College um, if you like so we're going to start and I should say that this is very loosely modelled on a de- kind of desert island discs concept except I thought that one thing that I enjoy is listening to a whole album rather than a particular tracks and nowadays it's very easy um, and Julius and I were just talking about this it's very easy to just listen to individual tracks and chop and change between music with streaming and everything however there is still a lot to be gained from listening to whole albums so it's it's a it's a broad desert island disc concept but focusing on whole albums that's the idea um, I'll introduce Julius Grower Yates Glazebrook Fellow of Law Jesus College Dean of College and much revered DOS um, third and second year lawyers, I think. Is that right? Anyone that will have me. Anyway. <laughs> um, I'm an itinerant DOS, but at the moment, just the third years. Anyway, so I, my, so Julius is my DOS, and I think you were in your first year when I started. Yes. I think we were your first cohort, so um, it's good to talk to you about music, which is something that we've discussed over the years, I think, um, and could discuss more. Um, so thanks so much for coming and doing this for us. It's great to be here, Kirsty. <laughs> I'm showing my age because Kirsty was the presenter of Desert Island Discs for a long time when I was growing up. I think it's Lauren now. It's, has it changed? Yeah, yeah. It presumably has. Yeah, it has. It's I Lauren must, Laverne now. I must admit, I don't listen to it very often. Um, Not even when our master was find, on it. I do find. Well, don't put me on the spot like that. <laughs> but I do find. It's just a yes or no question. Um, I didn't actually. I didn't. Although I'm sure she has plenty of interesting things to say. Maybe she'll come on this one, which would be good. You never know. It would be a privilege. Um, on that note, let's crack on. Julius has chosen Play, the album Play by Moby. He has chosen What's the Story, Morning Glory, the famous Oasis album. Um, he's chosen Who's Next from The Who, and he's chosen the Verdi opera Nabucco. Um, I think we should start with Play, which I was listening to this morning. And I think I'll quickly say something about Moby. He was a quite, an, I think it was quite an important figure in sort of ni- the dance music scene of the 90s. Um, came to dance from a kind of punk background. Play was his, was his, I think his most commercially successful, is his most commercially successful album, about 12 million copies sold. Um, came after some less successful albums, including the terrible Animal Rights. Um <laughs> And came before some less successful albums as well, I yes, think it's worth absolutely. saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, my favourite song on this album, and we'll attach links to all these songs uh, when we put these episodes out there, is Southside, which I think is the... It strikes me as the most kind of house music-y influenced one. It's got an incredible chorus, 
with vocals by Gwen Stefani, I think. Um, but there's also some, I think, Machete, the track. Machete is, is pretty much a solid industrial rave vibe. Um, and there's also some very bizarre music, um, stripped back music that sounds almost like a Simon and Garfunkel track, like guitar, flute and strings. So, so tell us, Julius, why you like this album. So I think this album represents uh, a couple of things uh, to me, not least uh, learning to appreciate music beyond just a song that you liked sitting in your parents' car to and sort of nodding your head or tapping your foot along to. Um, some of the tracks on it, in particular Porcelain and Why Does My Heart Feel So Bad, um, are extraordinary pieces of music whereby what's fused is... Uh, the electronic aspects of music and the kind of perfectionist uh, leading to the sort of utopian aspect of music. It's perfect in the sense that computer keystrokes don't tend to, to make errors. You don't, you don't miss strike a note on a keyboard or, or put your finger over the wrong button on a saxophone or anything. Uh, and the kind of utopian promise of serenity that those two tracks in particular belie. But what I find really affecting um, is how he fuses that with uh, some real vulnerability and honesty and, and if not misery, then kind of pessimism. There's a very striking line in um, Porcelain where he's singing, obviously, to his ex-girlfriend or to a woman he's about to depart from. And the line is, tell the truth, you never wanted me. And it's in this kind of perfectionist, rolling, roaring pulse of a club song. Um, and it's a strikingly honest line where you can say to someone after a long relationship, the truth that I know and that you know is that this whole thing has been false. And so he's playing with a kind of mix of emotions and he's pulling you in different directions. And I find that very compelling to give away my age slightly more than maybe I should. A very famous film when I was... A, a child going into being a teenager was The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. And the whole premise behind that film was how perfection is bespoilt and, undersco and underscored, undercut by fallibility and uh, unrequited longing and failed desire. And I think that some of Moby's best tracks mix the, the perfectionism and the utopianism of modern electronica with the soul and the heartbreak and the pessimism of old-fashioned blues writing almost and that produces something that i find very powerful mm, i think that's really interesting and a number of things about that are really interesting the first is you talk about that kind of old blues feel i think some of the inspirations for these tracks came from a set of field recordings didn't they um of sounds from the deep south absolutely so um but also i like the way that you talk about um you you mentioned his words and, and being pulled in different directions but but musically coming from it sort of from a genre's perspective there are all sorts of quite disparate influences thrown together in quite a random way, um, which makes for really interesting listening. And it's, it's you know, I come back to this album point. I listened to this the whole way through this morning, and it really does pull you in different directions, yeah. musically, lyrically, emotionally. Um, and it's, in that sense, it's quite hit and miss. And I think mm. some of the elements are thrown together in a bit of a, a, bit of a slapdash way. And yet there are grains of incredible precision in it as well. I think, and, you know, um, one image that came up quite a lot in the reviews was this image of Moby in his kind of, um, it was a kind of completely bare New York apartment. Mm. He, he thought that he was a bit down and out at this stage, I think, when Play came out. 
and it was just him and his kit, I think. So you do get that slightly romantic image of the just the man and his own musical mind kind of unleashed, I think. Absolutely. And the contrast to some of the other uh, bands and artists we're going to talk about of, you know, a guy quite possibly in a quiet flat with headphones on mixing these extraordinary sounds together and producing these extraordinary fusions and, and flares of, of noise and, you know, rhythm uh, with a band like The Who, who when they used to record, would record in the full fury of all playing together in a very loud studio, making as loud a noise as possible. And so there is something, again, in that kind of contradiction of how Moby creates his music, which, again, is rather compelling and, and, and uh, you know well compelling perhaps is the right word but also kind of draws you in and, and and makes you interested in him in a way that other artists who mix sounds together in that way uh many of whom i'm a fan are, are less interesting i'm less interested in how the pet shop boys make their music than i am in moby although i enjoy a number of pet shop boys records yeah i think moby's interesting because particularly if you look at him as a man as well in that there is a kind of vulnerability there he's not an unambiguous rave music writer mm. is he he's not just a remixer he's not just into about hard beats and kind of headbangers he's there is something quite vulnerable about him and of course you know on a personal level he was a he was kind of animal rights activist mm. he experimented with meditation he was quite a solitary guy he never had a partner never had any children so i think there is this kind of interesting contradiction and a lot of it comes out in this album i mm. think it was a really good choice thank you um should we move on i want to move on to the oasis album sure which must be one of the most famous British albums. Absolutely. In history. Absolutely. And um, we were talking before we started recording about obviously the need to avoid picking compilation albums. Um, but I tell you what, this is an album that's getting pretty close to a best of. There are a couple of other Oasis tracks that we all enjoy. Um, but actually, 75% of What's the Story Morning Glory are not only 75% of their best songs but are also songs that I guarantee if we put on at a party, everyone would know all the words to. Yep. Um, and I think that's uh, that's definitely one of the reasons why I picked it. The main reason why I picked it is because, obviously, I am a child of the 90s, which was a time when Britpop was uh, exploding, and it wasn't just Oasis, it was Blur, it was Pulp, it was many other bands. Oasis weren't the first uh, band I bought as a record, Again, I'm slightly showing my age. The first piece of music I actually bought was on an audio cassette for my mum's car. <laughs> it was by The Beautiful South, and it was their song called Rotterdam, which in retrospect is basically a piece of pop doggerel. But <laughs> it was at the... it was at the uh, Apologies to any Beautiful South uh, friends and relatives listening. Um, it, was, uh, it was at that time when there were a lot of energetic... British bands from around the country and actually from up north, so Sheffield or Manchester in Oasis's case or Liverpool, making music that sounded fresh and sounded modern. And when I was listening to Watch the Story Morning Glory a couple of days ago, I thought to myself, it doesn't, most of these songs don't sound dated. If someone re released Don't Look Back in Anger or Roll With It or Wonderwall or She's Electric Today, it would sound like they'd written it in 2020. So that has stayed fresh. And there are limits to the music, and I'd be interested to sort of explore uh, some of them in our conversation. But it kind of embodies a time, musical awakenings probably making it sound too grand. But when I was learning to enjoy music properly and listen to it and learn the words of songs and 
sing and shout and make noise and oasis and in particular what's the story morning glory absolutely captures the sound of my childhood and the first noises i was properly enjoying listening to that's fascinating i think we i think let's let's talk you say that there are there are i think there are well there are a few interesting things about what you just said but what is interesting is that you talk about the musical limits of that album and I think I I think that one of the things that is very hard to place with Oasis, and it makes it hard to tell, really, if you were listening to it blind, what era it was from, is that it's packed full of different influences, quite overtly put in there. It's packed full of Beatles influences. It's packed full of, you know, more solely influences. Absolutely, the Beatles one is a particularly interesting one, given the contrast between the boys from Liverpool and the boys from Manchester. But it's clearly in there. Yeah, and yet. And yet, the kind of the way that they use very overt um, material from other people's work mm. feels kind of bold and impressive and and, and arrogant. Yes, and, and really oasis. There's something about it. They've managed to take ownership of other people's works. Yeah, of other people's of other people's riffs and other people's ideas. Um, and actually, that's uh, that's an interesting point because again, another thing that I kind of learned about music over my time sort of consuming it properly is not only that we look at most of the artists we like's careers in retrospect and we only look at their greatest hits and we kind of ignore the crap during lockdown i was driving to and from london um on empty motorways and was listening to uh every time i drove up and down a bob dylan album and boy are there a lot of albums to listen to and boy is there a lot of shit right (laughs) what we know is that some of the albums blood on the tracks etc have four or five amazing songs on them but some of them are just garbage and some whole albums are garbage Mm -hmm. but that's all right because we live in the spotify age where if we wanted to you know dim the lights have a few beers out and listen to bob dylan we could listen to 30 records in a row and not listen to one dodgy piece and actually going through these albums and finding the hit and miss notes is uh one of the kind of joys of learning to discover an artist going through with them the point about taking references as well you know if we were if we were talking about painters we wouldn't be surprised that they're referring to each other's work if we were talking about poets even shakespeare used to refer to other artists poems in his sonnets we wouldn't be surprised at that in literature and learning to not be surprised by that in music is another kind of amazing thing about learning to appreciate almost the second time around some of your favorite songs yeah absolutely i mean that's something that i've experienced on a big level learning and doing classical music which is my sort of area is that the best improvisers are not the ones that put themselves out as authentic geniuses Mm. creating original sounds they're the ones that who can amass the great amount of material they've taken in listened to and learned and can kind of restructure it reorder it stand on the shoulders of giants essentially and come out with something the next step in the process well that's it and i think that you know we are all victims of the terrible youtube age of the four chord song right i forget the name is it the axis of awesome who can tell you if you listen hard enough and you know you sort of cup your hand to your ear that every record in the whole world is based on packlebell's canon and i think that might be pushing it a bit but one of the great moments in listening to any music to my mind is the ability to make a connection between something you're listening to for the first time and something you know deep down inside i remember it dawning on me that the theme uh in uh somewhere you know there's a place for us somewhere from west side story is just lifted from tchaikovsky's uh sleeping beauty or is it swan lake i think it's swan it's swan lake forgive me 
But, you know, he's not stolen it. He's not trying to pass it off as his own. But there's a beautiful surge in that song, which he thought would match the surge of emotion when the two characters are actually falling for one another. And you can locate it in New York and have it amongst Puerto Ricans. And it works just as well. And that's genius. That's not yeah. that's not fraud. That's applying beauty to new realms of beauty. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely fascinating. And I don't think Oasis um, necessarily always managed to negotiate that process in quite such an elegant way. <laughs> I think that's but... almost certainly right. <laughs> or indeed a wholly lawful way, but that's a slightly different question. But they must have done something right. I was reading this morning that the Nebsworth concert that they gave just after they released this album, um, nearly 5% of the UK population applied for tickets. Wow. Wow. I, well, I can believe it. I mean, <laughs> these are just... And the thing is, if you want to get down to brass tacks, I mean, you know, roll with it, Wonderwall, don't look back in anger, hey now, as two, three, and four and five on the same album. That's pretty impressive, right? Some might say she's electric, morning glory and champagne supernova to, to sort of run it out of the other side. Um this is a great party. If they're playing that live and nothing else and you get to go there with your mates, you're having a good time. Because although they don't do a lot, although their range isn't enormous, you know, they're not they're not a, a Dylan or anything, obviously. Um, there is the kind of the harder stuff. There is the emotional stuff. And then there's stuff like Champagne Supernova, which is almost your kind of teen zone, you know, odyssey sort of record. So they, they, there's a range. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, 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 a, there's enough. There's a range. And and that's a very satisfying range for me anyway. Yeah. And it is really interesting to hear the tracks that didn't quite make it into the British public musical imagination. Yes. Um, I, I, this summer, I took the advantage during lockdown of listening to every single song by Earth, Wind and Fire. Oh, now that's a magnificent way to spend your time. And not only is that a good way to understand nearly four decades of music um, and a whole host of different influences... Um, but it's also to appreciate that even even the geniuses that can create a song like September yeah. can create terrible music. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean I mean we'll come to Verdi who 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 also knew his fair share of failures. Yes. I mean, I think maybe let's move to Nabucco, in which which is his third opera and it and arguably is his most famous, mm. um, possibly other than Aida. But the first two operas have kind of disappeared. They're not really considered yeah. serious. I mean, Labrette, I know Labrette talked about Nabucco. He said that Italian opera was, was simply trivial before Nabucco. Mm. So there's, there's plenty of crap in, in Verdi's work, I think. And that is a lesson for us all, right? So I'm talking to you as, you know, you're a student, I'm an academic. And, and, and that is so important for us to take away in our own lives, that individual idea that even Verdi can write crap. Right. I mean, I was always very struck by towards the end of his career, the incredible Indian batsman Rahul Dravid did a tweet where he said, you know, I've played for India in test cricket. I've batted for India in test cricket, you know, 450 times or something. And I've only made my average 60 times, which means that 65 percent of the time I've let my country down, I failed. And you think to yourself, my God, if you think you're a failure, the rest of us are literally a non-starter. No but yeah, so knowing that even Verdi wrote some rubbish knowing that even the very greatest of them all, the most luminous, spend most of their time producing stuff that doesn't quite work or doesn't quite resonate with people, even if they like it, that should be a heartening fact. That should tell us all that we're 
we're on the right yeah. journey, yeah. even if it feels like we're producing garbage at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. We all we all have to throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. Absolutely. Okay. Even bad. And I've read your essays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've thrown my fair share of legal shit at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise, listen. That was a very single listener. I apologise. That was a very cheap shot. Um, <laughs> no, perfectly justified. Please um, write to me if you want to see examples of his work. <laughs> yeah, please don't get me involved in that. <laughs> Anyway, let's let's talk a bit about Nabucco because yeah. um, I think it was first shown in 1842 at the Scala in Milan. Um, it was instantly massively successful. Um, it had its first showing in London in 1846 to the name Nino because um, biblical biblical names on the stage were considered improper. Oh, fantastic! The trivia, um, and I believe that you first saw it. Did you? You or you saw it a couple of years ago with Domingo? In the I actually Garden. saw it twice in the same summer. So, um, oh, did you go to um, Verona as well? No, yeah. I didn't. I'm not that. No, I'm not. <laughs> that would be seriously impressive. Yeah, like yeah. Rose, I don't travel well. <laughs> um, no, I um, knew about Nabucco for a long time, uh, and I've liked opera for a long time, and knew about Nabucco, but had never seen it because, although I like opera a lot, I'm a pretty lazy opera fan. So, notwithstanding COVID, I will try and go to the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden two times a year, but I will not travel that far afield. I say that I have once been to the opera in Copenhagen, but other than that, I, I, I just like Covent Garden. I like my routine. I like the opera house. I can't like the productions. But Nabucco, sorry? You can't do much better. Well, well, indeed, this is what I like to think, although obviously I'm sure La Scala is quite an evening if you can get it on the right mm. night um, and the audience aren't booing the tenor for missing a note. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Nabucco finally came up and I remember saying to my dad, you know, I'd like to go see it. So he booked some tickets and got us there. Um, and then when I looked at the cast list, I saw Domingo was singing Nabucco's part, but it wasn't the night we'd got. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to try and read the words the first time I go with my dad and get the story into my head. And then I will just go again and I will just close my eyes and I will try and listen to Domingo go through it. I thought, if I may say so, the staging was shite. Was it? It was awful. It was just loads of grey pillars in a sort of sandy base and and they just didn't change the scene that much at all it just didn't work i've been well no i just that's interesting i just i that's a very interesting point because i think it's an abado production isn't it the one that that and i wonder whether one of the weaknesses with nabucco as a piece is that it would work perfectly well as a concert yes it's just a series of set pieces and good songs it's yes. a bit like a mozart opera in that sense well indeed you could you could do it in here yes as long as you had a few people in contemporary costume yeah. and you had the programme giving you act, you know, scene one in the temple in Jerusalem, scene two in, I was going to say Baghdad, not in Baghdad, <laughs> in Babylon. Babylon. <laughs> um, that might be a modern that's setting. Probably, yeah, that's yeah. probably what, how, what the RSC would try and do with it. If Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, no, you're, I think you're quite right. Whereas La Traviata... Um, I've seen some extraordinary elaborate stagings. And the third act in that is set in a casino. And they had a roulette table, a roulette wheel and a, and a table with discs flying across it that was as large as this room, which is very small, listener. Um, and, and there were people dancing on the table as chips flew across. And I thought it was the most extravagant setting. But Nabucco was completely stripped down. And I thought that was a bit of a shame, actually, because, you know, they could have made more out of it. But as you say, actually, the answer is, really... 
just just close your eyes and listen because yeah. what's going on is is musical it's not the great drama of aida with the grand marches it's mostly some tired slaves sitting around fetching yep what was domingo like uh he was amazing um he was amazing he had still back then at least and this is only a, a couple of years ago he'd still got his voice um i know that his voice has dropped slightly as all the three tenors voices have gone down as they've aged and pavarotti's went down a, a note or two he still had it he still had the volume um he has got charisma and stage presence and that mattered um because i i think i wanted to see him as a performer rather than just to hear it because the, the version of nabucco i listened to in the last few days is actually a domingo recording so i heard domingo do it before what matters is seeing how he occupies the stage and and you know others do this jonas kaufman can do this incredibly well as well as a much younger man but it was special and it was enchanting i never saw pavarotti live and i haven't seen jose carreras live but but seeing domingo was enchanting and of course there's a little bit there's a place in all of us for a bit of schmaltz and when he gets the roses thrown at him at the end and everyone can stand up and applaud that's fun in and of itself you're clapping one of the most famous singers in the whole world so the whole experience of of indulging the the diva as it were is actually quite a fun night occasionally as well yeah i mean i wish i'm very jealous i wish i'd seen it um but i think he was he was nearly was he 75 or something like that so he you know it was it's and i think i don't know how big of a singer is you know for a singer but to me it seems like a tall order at that age um oh absolutely i mean one of the things that have always struck me ever since i've been going to opera is they're knackered at the end they are more knackered than a premier league footballer having an interview after a match because they have been on their feet singing as loud as they can most of the time for three hours under the lights knowing that there's no space for error um trying to sing against the full orchestra in a room with well victorian acoustics <laughs> yeah. and so they are they're they're breathing heavily it's not because they're about to cry because they're divas it's because they're knackered <laughs> and that's just yeah. extraordinary and he was doing that and he was getting the volume and the clarity of the tone and i thought it was it was unbelievable that's incredible i think what i like about opera is exactly almost exactly what you've just said um in that it requires it requires everything it requires musical engagement dramatic engagement physical engagement you know raw power yeah um you know incredible staging and also it, the ability to keep a straight face because one of the yeah. first <laughs> one of the first operas I ever went to see was adriana lecouvrier which is not a very well-known opera. It's a French one. And there's a scene where, I mean, we all know the standard form of the opera, right? Guy meets girl. One of them shouldn't be with the other one. One of them gets mardy about it. Someone passes away. There's a there's a bit of a drama. The end. But there's a scene where they are bellowing in each other's faces during this love duet. And you you can't help but wonder why one of them is not cracking up when an inch away is a you know a professional opera singer absolutely bellowing into their face and staring in their eyes yeah, um, yeah so it requires yeah. a great deal of composure as well yeah it's like when you listen to any piece of puccini and the main female lead is dying of consumption yeah. singing triple fortissimo <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it, you, i think there is the, a faint ridiculousness about trying to portray the world on a stage well indeed to have everything and that's you know it's just one of the one of the great joys of opera i think yes and that's it you know the great tv shows that we all enjoy are ones where we can sort of see bits of ourselves in the characters 
I do not go along to watch a Verdi opera or indeed an opera by anyone else thinking <laughs> if only I could see myself in Mimi tonight, that would be a real treat for me. I'm going because they're wonderfully conceited and because they're affectations, but because despite that, the quality of the libretto, the quality of the story and the quality of the music sweeps you away from any sort of rational understanding of the world and into their world. Nobody lives in a salon with 12 foot high French windows. Like this is not a thing. But boy, was I buying it. <laughs> That's amazing. I think we better move on. Um, let's finish with Who's Next from The Who, the 1971 album. The only Who album to top the UK charts, um, interestingly, which I, I, didn't, I didn't expect, to be honest, um, sort of researching this beforehand. So Baba O'Reilly, one of my favourite one of my favourite songs, an incredible song, um, often mistakenly called Teenage Wasteland because of the chorus. Mm. Um but I really like the name Teenage Wasteland. I think it, it says a lot. And I think that a lot of people have the image of kind of uh, rubbish strewn all over a set of fields after a festival, kind yeah. of strung out, <laughs> LSD-soaked teenagers. Um, Theresa May running through the fields. Yeah, fields <laughs> exactly. True liberation. What is it you love about this album? Um, so it is, uh, as the as the market managed to demonstrate, it is the probably the 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 apotheosis of the who as a band there are some other wonderful records there are two incredible rock operas in tommy and quadrophenia to consider and there is some later stuff including you better you bet which is a brilliant record but this is the apotheosis of the who's sound to my mind and i can say no more direct a compliment or not make no more direct an observation than to say that to my mind the who are the quintessential that's to say the focal case of a rock band that i've ever heard and and it, it is it is pure when they are very good it's as good as it is the focal case of good rock and and it that pleases my ears that's interesting because listening to it i got the sense that they do they nail the kind of power quartet energy yeah but there's also a load of synthesizer in this yeah. album in particular it's yeah and most notably on Baba O'Reilly which yeah. is half half of what you're listening to throughout the track is actually synth um and so again it's just this interesting point about remembering to look to take the long view of of musical development and how as time moves on these these classic rock bands that were beginning with your pinball wizards and stuff uh and Tommy are then discovering electronic devices and a sort of enriching their music so yeah i mean i'm i'm prepared to take that with it um just staying on Barbara o'reilly for a second what i love about it is the opening chord from pete townsend when he strikes the bass and it starts to burn through the synthesizer and the drums and so he's not only playing against a very loud synthesizer but also keith moon who's probably the best utilizer of a drum kit of all time basically playing a guitar part on a drum by the way if you actually listen to how he uses the the, the hi-hats right he's playing chords i mean he's it, it's simplistic but he's that good a drummer and that chord when he strikes it for the first time and he does his windmill strike so the arm obviously on stage comes right down and he bangs the note and that note pours out and it's like you know you imagine obviously it's not but you imagine that it that's the sort of note that could permeate out out of out into outer space and across the universe that is a real noise and it just opens you up and i am someone who has seen the who a number of times although they're obviously a lot older now than they were when they produced this record 
but love jumping up and down and throwing my my long locks up and down in the air and banging my head and there is nothing more energizing when you're listening to music than than pete townsend's guitar just firing these bolts of deep bass electricity through you and charging you up and getting you ready to go with the drums and it's just the most extraordinarily occupying experience it's music that fills you not just you know emotionally like listening to you know elgar or or, or patriotic music or something but it fills the whole of your body and it, it energizes right down your you spine. absolutely yeah, it's, about power. it's, it's about power it is about power and not kind of you know not jennifer rush power ballads but it is about like power and electricity and other bands great bands acdc etc led zeppelin it's all slightly different it's not that focal case it's not so pure the tone is not quite as pure it's not quite as focused and that's what the who get exactly right yeah well i think pete townsend there's not much i can add to that i think that says a lot and i think it's interesting because i was talking to someone yesterday about why i like the music of the 80s so much and if i had to say it in a word it would be power yeah um but it's interesting that you talk about that one chord that could kind of that could kind of permeate all the way to outer space this the original concept for this album was another rock opera wasn't it It was going to be called the the life house i think i think Um, so yeah and and interestingly there are some there are some interesting ideas i think in the development of that concept because there there was supposed to be a kind of authoritarian society where everyone was locked locked down essentially so to speak and then the way that you know as in all of these kind of novels and and pieces of art there's a kind of heroic figure who manages to break through um and how they do it in the concept of this original rock opera is through a particular chord there's a particular chord that has the potential this oh, is, this is there the we go. Well, there is, is a particular chord that has a potential to break through. <laughs> this is foresight to bring down yet. systems of oppression. And Fantastic. It's a, and when I was doing my, I'm doing piano exam, and and Scriabin <laughs> had exactly the same thought. He thought that eventually he was going to be, be able to write a chord that yeah. could bring us collectively into the next plane of consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not quite sure that the Who have done that, no, but it is interesting yeah. that when you hear that chord for the first time in Baba O'Reilly, I mean, when it starts, you think it's some kind of minimalist track, almost, yeah. don't you? It sounds like some kind of piece of Steve Oh, Wright. it could be, yeah, absolutely. It and could be that, Mike Rutherford. It could be uh, just on synth, just then, going nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. And then that chord arrives, and, you know, it feels like you're, you've arrived at the future, I think. Absolutely. And uh, there's so much in that song, and I won't, you know, I, I I won't bore you with all of it. But the bridge in that song is is a very powerful bridge, and then the lead guitar solo that follows it, and it plays on. It, 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 rock music doesn't usually play on my emotions in that way, but that bridge and that guitar solo certainly does because there is a context to it, and it's a more or less personal context uh, to me, and I I understand a little bit about the parts of London where they are from and they grew up and their experience as Londoners and their cultural reference points. And uh, I've actually got to know Roger Daltrey a little bit, not because we are perfect mates, but because my dad is his lawyer. Right. Um, and I and I know, I know what his experience is of being from the same part of London as me. And that feeling and that that kind of energy is one that I can resonate with and relate with. Um, and so it has a certain effect. I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the earliest music videos they produced for that showed lots of clips of life in London in the 70s. And one of the clips during that bridge actually was a picture of Arsenal fans leaving a ground in their colours because 
Roger Daltrey is a massive Arsenal fan and going to the Arsenal was a big part of his life when he was that age. Still is, but at that age. And again, when you're trying to connect with the message of the song um, and the message that he's sending out about what that means when you're from that part of the world, that does start to resonate in a way, you know, teenage boys get involved in football. And that that has a that has a resonance there beyond you know lots of other records. Brilliant. Well, I think we should stop there. I think we've collectively completely failed to keep this to twenty minutes. But either way, oh, is this just not the first act? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. In the rest, we'll talk about the rest of Verdi's work in the <laughs> second instalment of this. I um, was about to do the chorus of a Hebrew slave. <laughs> I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much, Julius. For My pleasure. This. Thank you for asking me to do this. If anybody listens to any of the records you and I have collectively mentioned and gets some joy out of it at this time, I think we'll be very happy. It'll be worth it. It'll you be know. worth it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.